Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Welcome you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the members here, one of the partners here at Rev. Um, we are about to embark on a new sermon series. We're going to be working our way through the book of James. Now, James is kind of interesting. It has a, an interesting spot in a lot of people's head, or maybe not a spot in your head. Uh, James is not really as popular of one of the letters as like Romans or Ephesians. It's not as popular as the Gospels. And if people have read through James, they, they likely have one particular picture that they remember, because there's something that James gets talked about for all the time. Most people are usually thinking about James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, which is, is best emblemized by this last verse, verse 17, if we can get that on the slide. <clears throat> In James two seventeen is what he says. He says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, faith without works is dead. That's what James has been come to know uh, by, by most people. It's the place where we, we can go to to encourage someone if they, they struggle to actually walk out the faith that they have in God. And I would say that it's partly because of this heavy leaning towards the working out of faith that James has been sidelined at different times. In fact, there's a historical reason for that. If we go back even to the Reformation, Martin Luther, when he was writing his commentary on James, he said this about it. He said that James is a right, strawy epistle. Now, I think old-time disses are really funny <laughs> because you have to have some sort of context that's like strawy, ooh, <laughs> right? Most scholars think that in the back of Martin Luther's mind, he's actually thinking about 1 Corinthians three twelve through 13. And here's what that says. It says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so in essence, what Martin Luther, Martin Luther seems to be saying here about James is, James, this is no gold, this is no silver, this is no precious stone. I'm not even sure if it's wood or hay, but I can't wait, we'll give you straw. We'll, we'll give you that, and we'll see how that fares on the very last day. You build something, you put something together, we really appreciate that. No, that's like, for me, I, I've been in this never-ending process of remodeling my home for like the last five years. And it'd be like if I was telling someone about that process and the difficulty, if someone was like, oh, you built a house? That's really cute. Was, was that hard for you? Like, like you were, you've been working on that? Is it going to stand up? Is it going to work well? Were you able to put everything together? It, it wasn't seen by anyone as a compliment that he said that. And it kind of set the trajectory for a decent amount of time. Now, to be fair to Martin Luther... In his second version of his James commentary, he takes that phrase out. <laughs> he never says why, just disappears, it's gone, and we can assume that maybe he's thinking a little bit differently about it. But when you think about the Reformation and Luther, you might actually start to understand maybe why this was a hard, hard book for them. You know, they had just come out of hundreds of years of being under a church where, where people didn't come to the word themselves. They weren't coming into like a, a relationship with God by reading what he said to them, enjoying how he unfolds page after page, his love for them. In fact, they've been being told again and again by priests, by the Pope, by all the different structures in the church, all the different things they had to do day in and day out to prove how acceptable they could be to God. 
The Reformation was blowing open that perspective, and people were coming back again and again to seeing that they too could know God rightly in his word. That they could find that he was a loving God who was pouring out on every page how much he loved them and how much he loved them in particular through Jesus. And so we can see that maybe a book that was talking and leaning into this idea of walking out your faith might have smelt a little bit of like what they just came from. It might have been a little bit of a worry that, that you're calling me back to just doing all these things again. And so for me, as I was thinking about James and, and reading through this, and I probably was being a little critical of the Reformation and maybe a little critical of Martin Luther, who had this habit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and a lot of different issues, I felt like the Lord really impressed on me, you're not that different. You're not that different than that. And I would venture to guess that maybe you all here this morning aren't that different either. You know, we, me, we're fairly unbalanced people. I don't mean that in the psychological sense, though that can be very true about us as well in our fallen state. But what I mean is we have this tendency, especially in this arena, to run to one of two sides. You know, we, we really struggle and we want to flip back and forth between these extremes. So, for example, on one day I can go to Scripture and I will begin to study it because I'm looking intently for a particular answer to a question. I'm looking to see what the Lord might say we should do about a particular issue in life. And I miss completely in Scripture the fact that God is speaking to me about his love, his care for me, his joy over me in Jesus Christ. And then the very next day, I can go back to the same Scripture. I can read it. I can find myself totally moved, my, my heart just soaring with passion and thankfulness and joy in who God is and what he's done. And I can close that and I walk out and nothing has changed about my life. I have these tendencies. We all have these tendencies to fall into these different areas, you know, it's this idea, this problem of doing versus knowing or feeling. You know, doing and knowing or having the right heart, they're often pitted as opposites in our culture, or even as opposing at times. We even have this kind of built into our, our way of talking about work, right? We have blue-collar work and white-collar work, right? Blue-collar where people go out and they do the actual stuff that needs to get done. You know, white-collar work where people have specific knowledge or they're engaging in different ways with people interpersonally, as though blue-collar workers don't think and have an understanding of what they're doing, or as though white-collar workers don't actually have to do some menial tasks to engage one another in the process that they're doing. We all know that this is a problem in this dichotomy. You know, For instance, if I went to my wife and asked her if we could have a date night next Friday, and if by chance she said to me, well, why? Why do you want to do a date night? If I said, well, because that's what you're supposed to do in marriages. We might not have the date night. <laughs> it might not go very well, right? And the right answer, in case you're wondering, is because I love you and I want to be with you. <laughs> That's what we should say. But on the other hand, if I, was, if I was telling my wife constantly how much I love her, how, how much I'm thankful for her, how much I appreciate her, yet I'm out working 80 to 100 hours a week. On the weekends, I'm spending eight hours a day out skiing or golfing with my friends. We're kind of like two ships passing in the night every time we see each other. She at some point is going to say, no matter what you say to me, I don't see the practical outworkings of that. It doesn't seem like it actually matters to you. You know, our friends, our family, our coworkers, they can tell when we do something with the right heart or reasons. And on the other side, we all feel the sting of wishing that someone would come over and practically help us instead of just giving us a platitude. You know, the fact is that relationships are what most clearly point out that this dichotomy between doing and knowing and feeling can't exist out here. 
On the one side, we have the risk of falling into a ditch where we just do and don't consider the right feelings or the right knowing behind it. And on the other ditch, we can fall into this place where we just have heady knowledge or an emotional experience that doesn't actually change anything that we do in our lives. Relationships are what hold that tension together. It's where we can see that we have to have them both to properly walk, both knowing and feeling and doing what goes with it. And we see that first and foremost with our relationship with God. And throughout scripture, God has always been looking for a people who are after his own heart and then walk as if they are those who know him and love him. And we see that clear from the, the fall, what God's desire was for Adam and Eve, all the way up through the New Testament. And, you know, whether it's our friend or our spouse or especially our God, these are all relationships that require us to know and love and walk out that knowing and love in practical, practical meaningful ways. In a very real sense, we want to be the complete relational package. We want to be able to do both in relationship at any given time in their right measures. We don't want to be stunted or skewed in any direction. And we see that clearly in Jesus as he walks amongst his people, as he both shares with them the joy he has in knowing the Father and what that looks like walking it out with each other in love and grace. So look at me again with the beginning here of James, how he jumps right into this idea. Here's the, the first section, James 1.1. 1, 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So here we can. We can talk a little bit about James, the stuff we didn't talk about in the particularities. It's written by a guy named James. There it was not an uncommon name. There was two Jameses who were disciples, and scholars tend to agree that this was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, we see this James talked about often in, in, in Scripture. We see him in Acts, particularly Acts 12, 15, and 21. And then we even see that Paul himself talks about James, the brother of Jesus. He says this here in about Galatians 1.18. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. This is where James lived, was in Jerusalem. He was a major figure in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and we know that James died a martyr's death in 62 AD. Uh, he, was, he was beaten and killed for his lack of desire to repent of, of loving Jesus Christ. And it was his very brother that he grew up knowing. But come back to James 1 here. James 1 says this again. He says, he says in here that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a very humble position to take to just call himself a servant. He's not asserting anything about himself. In fact, that might actually point to the fact that he was an apostle because he didn't have to assert anything. Um, he seems to be modeling his way of thinking about himself off of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And we see this in Acts 2 where Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And we sometimes forget that, that Christ isn't just part of Jesus' name. It's his title. It's the same as Messiah. It's our Savior. It's pointing us to the reality that Jesus had to come as the God-man who could actually die for our sins on the cross that we might be saved. And then we have this other piece, the Lord, which is pointing us back to his deity, to his very Godness. In fact, later in church history, when they're having arguments about who Jesus is in God and the Father and how they work together, and the Arians actually want to say that Jesus is not the same as the Father, not just in personhood, but in distinction, and he's not even really God. This is one of the passages, James 1.1, that they come back to to talk about how, no, look, he's both Lord and Christ. 
and go back again to James here, you know, we can see here that this is a type of a letter. He tells us here in James 1.1 that it's to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And he, he also says greetings. He tells us who the recipient is, and he welcomes us into that letter. You know, when James mentions the 12 tribes, he's talking about Jewish Christians that are living throughout the Roman Empire. And in fact, the interesting thing is, early on in the church history, most people from the outside considered Jews and Christians kind of the same thing. Christians were just considered a subgroup of Jews, even though they didn't agree with that with each other. And that matters here. You know, it's kind of like Baptists and Methodists, all the different kinds of, of Protestant uh, groups. Because what happened often between 30 AD and 70 AD was that the Jews were persecuted. And when the Jews were persecuted, Christians were persecuted. They were seen as one and the same. Through most of Jesus' life, and then especially after he was, he was dead, it happened fairly regularly, and there's many, many records where different Roman precepts, rulers of different areas, governors, would get mad for some reason at the Jews, and then literally kick them out of their houses. I mean, in an instant, in, in one edict, they had to pack up everything they had and just start wandering, try to find the next place they were going to. And that's what dispersion is talking about here, not just where they're at, that they're all over the place, but that they're actually been kicked out and wandering. In fact, this happened so many times that by the, the late 60s, the Jews in Jerusalem are so fed up with it that they revolt, try to form their own government. And that doesn't go well. Rome sends in Vespasian and Titus, uh, some of their best generals, to crush the rebellion. They destroy the temple and raise it to the ground and exile the Jews and Christians with them out of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know, as we come to James this morning, which exact dispersion he's talking to, but we can maybe narrow it down a little bit. You know, it's exactly the fact that James is, is leaning heavily, as we're going to see as we go through James, into walking out our faith that makes many people think this is happening early in the Christian walk. Think about it for a minute. Think about going back to the early church. There's no internet, and there's no email, there's no texting, there's no TikTok, no Twitter, no Instagram, no Facebook. There's no means of mass communicating what you would like everyone to know. So the disciples, led by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, are out spreading the gospel, sharing the gospel with everyone. And then oftentimes they're having to move on. And then they don't find out likely for months that what they said was confusing for some reason. There's no immediate tweet right after the sermon where the pastor can go, oh, no, I got a problem. <laughs> I've got to go clear that up with everyone next week. In fact, by the time they probably hear about it, it's very entrenched and usually very wrong. Uh, we see that again and again in Paul's letters as he writes back to the churches that he has, he has gone out and, and built in different cities, uh, realizing that they have a, a, a misunderstanding. Something is wrong. You know, they go to one extreme or another. And we're going to read uh, and, and see here in James how I think what he's doing is that he's dealing with this lack of balance. They're no longer balanced. They aren't walking out relationship with the Lord and their neighbor in a complete relational package, as it were, both doing and knowing and loving. You know, we're going to see that, that James isn't really trying to bring works out as against faith, as though he's fighting with Paul or, or fighting what, what Martin Luther and some of the reformers were worried about. Rather, it seems that, that James has run into some group of people who, 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 who has gone too far into this ditch on the other side. In fact, one of the questions has been, did he maybe run into some people who'd listen to Paul? Now, we don't know for sure, but look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 here. Peter says, Peter says this, There are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. 
It's decently plausible that this is what James is running into in the early history of the church, right? That people are hearing things and, and they're taking them the wrong way to their own desires or even just because they're moving that direction in sin. And then the reason why we think this happened early on is because in 50 AD, all the apostles get together in Jerusalem, in the first council of Jerusalem, and they have this big discussion about the Gentiles. What are we going to do with them? How are we going to let them in? Are we going to make them get circumcised? What's going to happen? And it's hard to believe that they wouldn't have talked about these sort of issues. And in fact, you would have thought that if James and Paul had actually talked to all these other apostles, that, that he would have cited that. He would have said, hey, I know what Paul's saying. This isn't what to do. We've talked about this. This isn't the right way to go. You know, all that's just to help set the stage for us, that here we have James likely, walking, or li- likely writing in the very early days of church history, maybe even just even in the first 10 years after Jesus' death. He's the brother of Jesus, and he has this heart to want to see this balance in relationship. And that's exactly where he goes next. Look at me here with James 1, 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it's helpful. We're going to see one phrase again and again throughout James. We're going to see brothers. He's not trying to be sexist. He's actually using the word appropriately here to mean brothers and sisters. So especially in this book, whenever you read that, know that he's speaking to everyone. Brothers and sisters, Christians, I have a heart for you. And what he's saying here is a kind of logic. He's trying to walk us through the logic, and the logic actually matters here for us. Uh, Look at his logic. Can we go to the next slide? This is what James wants. He wants his brothers and sisters to notice, especially amidst their trials, that God is working something for their good and his glory. And here's his logic. His logic is, you're going to have trials. He says, out of your trials, you're going to have the testing of your faith. That testing of your faith is going to produce steadfastness in your life. And that steadfastness, ultimate goal is perfection and completeness in Jesus Christ. So trials, testing of our faith, steadfastness, and then being perfect and complete in Jesus. The trials here, what he's talking about, that word can be used two different ways. It's going to be used both ways throughout James. We have this general idea of all the things that can happen to us. We can also talk about temptations. That's how it's going to be used just in a couple verses here in verses 13 through 15 in James 1. Uh, Here, he seems to be talking about broadly this idea of anything that can happen, Uh, any trial that you might go through, any difficulty in your life, particularly for the Jewish Christians that he's writing to, we're going to find out in James 2 and in James 5 that they're struggling with poverty. I mean, I can't imagine the kind of trials that I'd be facing if tomorrow I had to pick up everything that I owned or whatever I could carry on my back likely and leave and start a new life somewhere else. They're dealing with poverty. They're dealing with the loss of friendship, of civility, all these kind of difficulties. You know, for us, trials can come in all shapes and sizes. It can be failing health. It can be relational conflict. It can be struggles against our own sin, the brokenness that we have in our life. You know, for everyone, whether it's for them or for us, every trial feels trying in the true sense of that word. It feels difficult. And that's why it's important to note the logic here. And the logic here of starting with trials and talking about them being difficult isn't trying to encourage us to love the trial itself. We don't have to love that you're being kicked out of your home and have to wander your country to find a new place, a place for business, a place to find a, a, a life. You know, Paul says something very similar in Romans 5, 3 through 4. He says this. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that the suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Peter uses a similar kind of logic in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the gold that, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials are, as Peter says, for a little while, if necessary. Or as Paul says, knowing that it produces something. It's working in our lives for our good that we might know and love God more. And if we go back to our passage here in James, James is really fair and blunt to acknowledge that the trial is going to test our faith. We all feel that at different points in our walk with God. We wonder, Lord, are you good? Do you really know what you're doing? How is this going to work out in some way for me that I might love you more? But that's exactly the point of this kind of testing. The, the point and the idea behind that word test there is talking about proving genuineness, making pure, refining And that's exactly what God wants to happen, is that he wants us to to have our faith sifted and have all the impurities, all the doubts, all, all the ways that we don't rightly have faith in him taken away, that we might be standing before our God with a faith that is beautiful and pure in all the things that he can do and all the ways that he would love us. And yet even that testing, it has a purpose. We go from trials to tests, And then as James says, his goal is that it would produce steadfastness or perseverance. Now, this whole section is full of words that have amazing visual pictures behind them. Trials and the the temptations and difficulties, testing and purity and refining. And here, steadfastness is no different. The idea behind that word is that you might be able to stand under something. The picture is that you could go and pick up a heavy pack, throw it on your back, and then you could go a great distance with it that you could remain under it, that, that it wouldn't, wouldn't exhaust you too quickly. And that's a great goal in life to be able to have that. Uh, parents see this all the time. You think about having one child, and then you realize how difficult it is and how much work it is, and then God erases your memory, and you think, let's have a second, and that won't be nearly as bad now. And you find you have an endurance to actually handle a second. And then you get crazy and think maybe five someday would be a great idea. Why would people do that? I don't know. You know, when, when we first start things out like running, we, we, we say, I can get a half block and I think I'm dead. <laughs> and, and then you get past that point and you get to a half mile and you look back at the half block and it's not that bad. You get to a mile and you're like, woohoo, I can do half a mile easy now, no problem. And many classes at school seem that way the first couple days as you're trying to get on top of things. Some jobs feel like you just can't, can't quite get going until you finally do and it becomes almost second nature. And sometimes even some relationships feel like they just kind of trudge as we try to get things going. And yet, in God's grace, he provides steadfastness. It's our ability to persevere, to walk under. And God wants us to be able to carry the weights of this world and continue on by his grace and by his glory. And in fact, we're growing to be steadfast like our God himself, who's been steadfast and patient, bearing with us for many years from the garden to today and beyond that many might come to know Jesus and worship him. 
And we're called that kind of steadfastness throughout the New Testament, places like Luke 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, Revelation 2. Jesus even says it this way in Luke 21. Jesus says this, by your endurance, by your steadfastness, same word, you will gain your lives. It's part of how God is getting us to the end. It's part of how in Jesus Christ that he's helping us make it to where he needs us to get, how he's going to continue to grow us and change us. And if we go back to James here, it's not the end of the logic. You know, I would hope in my own heart that if I realize that trials are actually about purifying my faith, that that alone would hopefully be enough to be willing to stand under the trial so that I might have better faith in the Lord God. But then add to it the reality that 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 trial and that testing is meant to bring out steadfastness and ability to continue to walk under the weight that the Lord wants to put on me. Yet, he continues to go on, like, like training for any sport, uh, like most projects, we're trying to get to the very end. And the end of the outcome here is important. Now, I know for many of you, you actually go out and jog with no anticipation of ever doing a race. You don't look for a trophy. You're not looking for accolades. But I promise you, if it didn't actually keep you healthy, I'm guaranteeing about 99% of you would stop. It is not that fun. <laughs> right? We're always looking for the end that it's bringing. And in here, the end goal is perfection and completeness in Christ. Look again at what he says at the end of James 1.4. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we could replace that with the phrase mature, Christ-like, in the midst of all the examples that James is going to talk about throughout this letter, his main goal is that we might all be found perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. Now, we can see how, how this is said in, in, in uh, Romans 8.29. We can see, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to or made like the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is God's project. He's moving us along that we might be more and more like Christ daily. In fact, Paul says this is the work of what Christian leaders are supposed to be about. If we look at Ephesians 4, this is what he says. He says the work of Christian leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's what God's great project is. He's moving us from trials to refining of our faith to a steadfastness that can carry deep burdens throughout our life that we might become more perfect and complete like our Lord and Savior. It's because of that process and walking it all through that James was able to start that section saying, count it all joy. Count it all joy because you know the end. Count it all joy, like a cup, filled to the brim, overflowing onto the floor, full of joy, because God cares enough about me and you to walk us from where we start in the difficulties of life to becoming more perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. Now this, this is how we know that James is on the same project as every other gospel writer, as every apostle, of everything that we read throughout Scripture, he is first and foremost desiring that we would, through any type of situation, see that God is moving us to perfection and completeness in Jesus Christ. 
You know, he may be focusing, focusing more on the particular outworkings of how we walk that out to the Lord, but he wants us to be complete. He wants us to have that entire relational package with God and with one another. And so that's why our primary theme as we go through James on our main theme slide there is perfect and complete. You know, and we're going to see as we continue to read through James how all the different aspects that he talks about point back to how God wants us to be perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. And then, with much love to Martin Luther, we're going to keep our little Lego house as part of our theme. Because we want to remind ourselves that even though it may not seem important, may not seem like deep stuff all the time, these are the practical and regular ways in which God has been working since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, working to redeem and equip his sons and daughters that they may walk rightly before him. And then what we're going to see is that there's several main themes as we walk through James. And the first one that we started in today in James 1, 2 takes us through trials. It becomes what permeates through James, throughout the entire book. It comes back again and again. It's part of the process. And in reality, we all can agree, trials are just part of our lives. It's always there. It goes all the way from James 1, 2 through 1, 18. And then, like I said, it's in different places throughout it. We'll see next how James talks about how obedience to the word is part of the evidence that God is continuing to work and perfect us and bring us to completion in Christ Jesus We'll see that in chapter 119 through 226. You know, third, we're going to see that, that our growth in being more perfect and complete is demonstrated as we pursue peace with those around us. And then James does a very Pauline thing. He gets so excited in the middle of talking about pursuing peace with one another that he has to just exclaim to us again God's call to bring us into perfection and completeness in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that through chapter 3, 1 through 4, 12. And then James challenges us that part of being perfect and complete is to have more of God's perspective than our own, to love how he views things in chapters 4, 13 through 5, 12. And lastly, James is going to cap things off with two very practical conclusions that come from the pursuit of being perfect and complete. Today, what I pray you would walk away with is a, is a desire to ask a question, a desire to pray, a desire to go before the Lord, and ask, Lord, how are you still working to make me more perfect and complete in Jesus? You know, I believe throughout this series, we are going to be challenged to better walk out our relationships, both with God and with one another, and to love what's behind those actions and rightly balance our relationships with him and with each other. In particular, would you ask God what he's trying to grow you in and how you might walk out this faith that he's given you better? You know, are you being obedient to God in his word? Are you pursuing peace? Do you value his perspective above your own? And what I pray that we ultimately hold on to in the midst of all that is that we wouldn't do any of that to earn anything from God. That's all been dealt with for us on the cross in Jesus Christ. That's part of what allows us to come boldly to a book like this. We don't have to worry that as we read through it and we see ways in which we don't walk our faith out rightly, that it actually changes our relationship with God. That's already been dealt with by Jesus' cross, on the cross, in his blood. So we can stand there and acknowledge the ways that we would love to grow and act like a beloved son and daughter of God and walk rightly in his ways because of what he has shown us in his love 
and goodness. So would you pray that with me as we enter into this season? Even today, this morning, as we, as we take communion together, you know, the, the, the worship team is going to come up here as I pray. We're going to walk up and take communion. Would you even in that moment pray to God, can I trust this? Can I trust this reality that you have done for me in Jesus Christ? If you don't know Jesus yet, I would ask you to consider coming to him because he is the only one who's dealt with all of your problems, all your trials, all your difficulties are found in their purpose in him and that he wants to make you perfect and complete like him. But for those of you who believe this morning, we want to join you, join with us in communion and consider, can you trust your God, the blood of the lamb and the very brokenness of his body on the cross that we can examine our own lives and be willing to be called out by the Lord in the ways that we can walk it out better to his glory and for our own grace and goodness. Would you pray with me? Well, Father God, it's a sweet thing to come to a new section of scripture and to see what you might do in our lives through this time. Father God, would we come before you this week? Would we read James? Would we come before you in prayer and questioning and be willing to submit ourselves and say to you, Lord God, how might I need to love you and know you better? And then how might I need to walk out my relationship with you and with others in a way that brings you glory. Father God, you are so good and sweet. You have adopted us as sons and daughters, and we, we have no fear in, in, in your correction, in your discipline. It's only good. You only want us to love you more through this, God, and I'm certain that we will see that. Father, would you begin to open our eyes to the realities that you want us to see? And Father God, as we take communion this morning, would we be reminded of the beauty of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ? that all these things have been secured already. We are simply learning to walk in the new reality of our identity as your beloved sons and daughters. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.